Our guest tonight in this recorded edition of Extension 720 is, I suppose, America's best-known CEO, namely Jack Welch, who's only recently retired after some 20 years running General Electric. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's awful nice to be here, Mel. Thanks for having me. Uh, what came to mind as I was reading this book, uh, an early part of the book, was the film, The Graduate. Mr. Robinson, the betrayed husband, accosts the hero, played by Dustin Hoffman, and he says to him, looking towards his future, Dustin's just graduated from college, I have only one word for you, plastics. Exactly, exactly. And uh, That was your word. That was my word. That's where I started. And I got lucky from there. Your first job really was? In plastics. In plastics for General Electric, yeah. way back then. And when General Electric wasn't much in plastics. What was it, actually? What was the what was the firm within GE? Well, we had a little development business that yeah. uh, came, came out of some chemical work done at the research laboratory. And uh, they were going to start a new plastics. And I and I had gotten a Ph.D. at Illinois in Champaign. And uh, I came from Boston. So they had this little lab in Pittsfield, and I was the first employee. So I was lucky enough to be a startup in a big company. You must have done something very good in plastics because 20 years later they make you the head of the whole company. Well, we started from plastics from scratch. I hired the first employee, the second employee, the third mm -hmm. employee. And before we know it, we had a business. And um, uh, as I, as the business became successful and our team became successful, they gave us more businesses. Such as? Such as the medical business, the uh, uh, electronic components business, the motors business, a uh, whole series of businesses. And we stayed in the same little town, Pittsfield, Mass. You wanted to avoid going down to Fairfield. Desperately. Why? That was, that's headquarters. That's headquarters, yes. I, uh, it, it was quite a bureaucracy. It was a good company, first-rate people, but it was just in a different world. We were running a little band up in Pittsfield, Mass., in the outskirts, and we weren't part of the central unit, so we were able to kind of come to work in dungarees and have parties and celebrate every little victory, and we're, we, we thought we had the world by the tail right where we were, and we didn't want to get on with the suits. In 1960, when you took your first job with General Electric, what was the worth of the company? In 60, I can tell you what it was in 80. When you took, the took when, over when, CEO. When I came chairman, it was $13 billion. And today it is? About, about $400 billion. Mm -hmm. It reached as high as 600 during during the good days of a year ago. Things have declined a little bit over the yeah. last year. Uh, you rank second in total corporate value, is that right? In the, no, in the number world. one in the you world. You are number one. Uh, who's number two? Uh, now it's uh, Microsoft. Uh huh. With whom you are leagued in a few operations, as a matter of fact. Yes, in MSNBC and then in the, in the uh, television business and in the internet business. Yeah. It was fascinating your takeover of your purchase of um, NBC RCA. How many years ago was that? 1986, no. So that, so that was clearly, 15 years ago. That was clearly your undertaking, your yes, decision. Yeah. Yeah. What was in your mind? Well, at that time, we, we were facing the Japanese competition. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for businesses, frankly, that, that were protected. As you recall, in the early 80s, there was an enormous belief that Japan was going to take over the world in manufacturing. And um, I, I wasn't so sure we were going to thwart that effort. And I was looking for businesses, healthcare, uh, food and uh, businesses that were protected. As you know, the networks at that time and still are protected from foreign ownership. And uh, so we, uh, we acquired RCA, and RCA had some very good businesses along with the network that fit with our businesses. So it was a perfect fit. 
you really acquired something which had been founded, I guess, by General Sarnoff. That's right. Whenever that was, it's way back in prehistory. Yes, in the early, um, I think in the early 30s, the, the, the radio was the first uh, mm -hmm. game that they came up with. And they were in the war, and as a matter of fact, NBC, <coughs> excuse me, RCA, GE, and Westinghouse were all together in that effort. And uh, at the end of the war, there was a breakup. And GE got the uh, RCA headquarters, Westinghouse got some of the radio stations, and uh, General Sarnoff went off to invent television, and uh, mm -hmm. pioneer television, I should say. We're sitting uh, in the building at the Tribune Tower on the ground level uh, with a plaza just behind us or out the windows, and across that plaza is, of course... The NBC local station. Yeah, and the NBC RCA, RCA building. RCA building. Yeah. You've been over there today? I was over there today. <laughs> Not at all surprised. <laughs> uh, 20 years as a CEO is a long time in, in the highly competitive and rather fierce corporate life of America, isn't it? Well, it, it turn, turns out that I've seen four or five CEOs in most companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've had a lucky long run with a great team of people. So uh, it kept we kept reinventing ourselves. And I guess we probably had five CEOs at the same time, all in the same body. Well, of course, the crucial thing about, uh, have I yet said, I think I have not, that there's a, a new book, and it is indeed a memoir or an autobiography by Jack Welch, titled Jack, subtitled Straight from the Gut. Uh, John A. Byrne is the co-author. It's published by Warner Business Books. Uh, as I say, it's Jack Straight from the Gut, but the English edition has a different subtitle. Yes, they, they thought Straight from the Gut was a little too American, and they had a title called Lessons I've Learned Leading Great People in a Great Company. Which is not a bad subtitle. It's not as punchy as Straight from the Gut, but what lessons, in fact, have you learned? That's what this book is largely about. Well, it's a story, and, and it's not a how-to book. It ends up being a how-to book narrated through a story, I hope. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I really try and describe here is that the whole book is really all people. It's all about getting the best team on the field, whether it's uh, business isn't like isn't unlike baseball, football, or anything. it's a game. And the facts are you better have the best players if you're going to win the game. And the whole idea here is to develop management processes that get you the best players and give those players and give the, and give the people in the organization the chance to use their creativity and their ideas to make things happen. They don't happen from the top. How do you do all of that? You just devote your, yourself to education. Uh, we built a, a, a management institute that I teach at twice a month. Uh, all, all of our leading managers teach there. Uh, we measure people every single day. Every day is an appraisal. We formalize it through an operating system that three times a year we look at people and how they're doing formally and give them formal feedback. Mm. One, one of the problems you face is this, what I call superficial congeniality, where somebody fills out an appraisal and somebody says, and they, they say they're great, and the manager says you're great too, and then people get carried along into their late 50s and somebody says, hey, you're really not so great after all. And, and we don't need you anymore. And we don't need you anymore. Mm. And that's the cruelest thing of all. So we try very early in careers to t tell people what's right about them, what they can improve, and how we can help them. And if we can help them, we tell them that they're better off moving on to another place. The whole thing is about Mel 
trying to develop in people the self-confidence to come up with the ideas themselves. But on the question of uh, performance feedback, you have positive appraisal, and but you hit the negative where the negative is clearly visible. But there's a kind of a defect also built into such a system, and that is that the person who's doing the evaluating might feel the person he's evaluating coming along too fast and breathing on his neck might be potential competition. So he might, in fact, give a far more negative interpretation than the younger guy really deserves. How do you handle that? You, you pray to God you don't have hosses' necks like that in the place. And you just work like hell to be sure that that isn't part of a culture. That if that culture is found, it's absolutely unacceptable. The manager is unacceptable. That you had you build an informal open atmosphere, where everyone, everyone's comfortable in their own skin. They talk about things directly. Direct discussions are a way of life. And you don't have these, if you will, mean-spirited, you know, you're going to have them in any 350,000 organization, but you work every day to talk about them. You know, we talk in our company, if I can bore you for a second, about the four types of managers. Oh, I'd love to hear. The, man, the type one ha, has the values, makes the numbers, onward and upward. Mm -hmm. Type two doesn't have the values, doesn't have the non-numbers, get them out of there. Type three has the values, doesn't make the numbers, give them a second chance, give them a third chance. They're the type of people you want to have around. The type of person is type four, that's the bane of all corporations. That's really the trouble. The hoss's neck who makes the numbers, the guy without the values, who gets it on the backs of people, who does things like you just described. And too often people look the other way to that person because he's delivering the numbers or she's delivering the numbers. And that's the person you, we talk mm. about all the time in our mm -hmm. company, to, to root them out. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a few left in G, the G that I left, but we tried every day to find that type of person who just innervates an organization, just sucks the energy right out of it. A productive bastard. That's, that's perfectly said. But you want to get rid of them. Even though they're, as you say, making the numbers desperately want to get them out because if if you if you're not walking the talk or you you're not absolutely doing what you say mm -hmm. the whole organization knows it one one of the big mistakes in 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 business is the bosses always think the people don't know what's really happening they know everything in fact the ceo is probably the last person to know what's really going on and in the end if you have those sorts of people in your organization the organization knows it, and all the talking in the world you have doesn't count. Well, the CEO is like the uh, four-star general. It's hard to come up to a four-star general if you're a colonel and say, sir, you're absolutely wrong, or sir, you've made a big mistake. Not if you encourage it. Not if you beg for it. Not if you put your chin on the line and ask for it every day. And you did that? All, every day I knew how to. How do you do that? How do you get people who are afraid uh, of crossing you to tell you things that are going to suggest that you have made errors you talk about your own errors i bought a, a brokerage firm dumbest mistake in the world if i can make the biggest mistake the company a real dopey move uh, and i did it so i'd always tell tell kids look if, if i can make a rock that big you ought to be able to make small ones don't be afraid to go to bat and take mm -hmm. a swing one of the great things about having a big company is you can make a lot of, you can go to bat more often you don't have to hit them all out of the park, Mel. 
and you can have a few errors. And as long as they don't end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, you've dodged a bullet, you've taken a swing. If successful, you've built confidence in people that have tried it. So I think you just got to get making a company informal is a huge deal. May not seem like much. Well, I'm very interested in your uh, your use of the words. You've used it here a few times, and it's, uh, it's throughout your book, uh, of the culture. That's an anthropological concept, of course. Uh, that suggests that there's a way of life that goes with a corporation. And maybe corporate cultures vary from corporation A to B to C. Absolutely, they do, and there's no question about it. And look, most, most corporations in America were built out of the uh, success of the 50s, 60s, and 70s when Japan was bombed out, Europe was bombed out, and, and an industrial military complex was sort of built with a general on top, if you will, the CEO, and all the brigadier generals and everything else all the way down through colonels. And that hierarchy created a militaristic organization. We, we tried from 1980 on to create the family grocery store. Now, how do you get, how do you get a big organization that's been structured and built on this military complex idea to act like a small grocery store. Well, what do you mean by the metaphor of the family grocery store? Everyone owns a piece of the action. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the customer. Everyone treats everyone with dignity. Everyone gives the neighbors good treatment. You, you live off your relationships. And that's what we tried to create. We tried to create a place where everyone would say what they thought. It would be a place to gather, a place to talk. Uh, business is fun. You spend most of your waking hours at work. Why and how would you ever make it ugly? So we, we, we do everything to celebrate any victories, small and all. Move, move, move the ball five yards, have a pizza party, bring in a keg of beer, do something. But give people the feedback that they're getting success from their little efforts, from effort after effort. Gee, I think I went to work for the wrong company. I shouldn't have worked as an academic in universities or for this radio station. <laughs> I should have found my way into GE. Well, I wish you did. We needed smart guys. <laughs> uh, we have to pause. Speaking of business, we've got a little bit to take care of. And then directly back to Jack Welch, we're uh, drawing from, though there's so much more in uh, his new book, Jack straight from the gut. That's memoir uh, published by Warner Business Books. We return directly after this. And we continue in conversation with Jack Welch, um, author of Jack, Straight from the Gut. That's published by Warner Business Books. And uh, this is sort of your, uh, is it your apologia pro vita sua or your confessio or what? I mean, it's your way of accounting for what your life has been about. Well. I it's really a story. It's got a lot of stories, surprisingly. I mean, when, when we wrote the book, we, we thought it, was, it would be a story of um, how a motivational story that you can come from a pretty modest background and, get, and things work out if you do it all right. You can be an Irish kid on the streets of Salem, Massachusetts. Right, and it can work out. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought it would be a story of a lot of my errors so people know that you don't get it all right all the time. So we talked a lot about mistakes I made on the way. We talked about processes and people and how, how to build organizations. But what we didn't know and what turned out to be an incredibly important thing is that 
it's a story of tough love between an Irish mother and her son. And that has been the thing that surprised us in the feedback on the book. Yeah, let's talk about your mother. Yeah. She obviously meant a great deal to you. She meant everything to me. Yeah. She was uh, strong. Um, she was sort of the domineering neighborhood, Irish neighborhood mom who did the taxes for everybody. She was the smartest one in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. She uh, uh, was generous. Uh, she was uh, demanding. Uh, she was. Uh, she knew how to hug, and she knew how to kick, and uh, she used both tools very effectively. How many kids were in the family? One, me. You are it. And I was born to a rather late in life in those days, close to forty, and um, I guess she gave me most of her life. The only child, very often, of course, gets tremendous attention, and and is overloved because it's the one investment you've got on the filial side. That's true, and she, you know, here I was with this speech impediment, and uh, she's the only person in the world that I probably couldn't have ever convinced anybody that their brain was working faster than their tongue, therefore, because they were so smart. And uh, she told me that all the time. And uh, I never realized how short I was. I'm 5'8", I played all the sports, was captain of a couple of sports. I look now back on the pictures of the high school teams and mm -hmm. things, God, I was a shrimp, and I, <laughs> but I never felt it. Yeah. I never felt my size. And I never felt uh, anything about this speech impediment. I, I Take yourself back to the time when you were just entering college. Uh, you would have been about 18. Right. right. Um, what sense did you have of yourself then? What sense did you have of what your future might be? No, everything, I was the first one in my family to go to college, yeah. the first one in my, all my relatives. My ambitions were modest. I, um, I had always been a jock. I was a good hockey player, a pretty good golfer, uh, pitched on the baseball team, uh, had fun, uh, was a class officer in high school, but didn't have any, didn't have any great ambitions. Did well in school. Uh, got there, and I, I actually went to the University of Massachusetts, which was a break. Because the competition there was was fifty dollars a semester, the competition was not the keenest at that time. It's become mm. a better school today, so I was able to look pretty good amongst a a crowd, and and I've always been lucky. I've always had older people be very nice to me, and professors there were good to me, and uh, I got a fellowship to Illinois, and it, but it all it was always a series of accidents. At Illinois, I was going to get a master's degree. I was flying to an interview once. and I was on the plane. Beside me was a colleague from Illinois. And he had just gotten a PhD. And we were going down to the Ethel Corporation in Baton Rouge for an interview. And at that time, they called them stewardesses. I guess they're flight attendants today who came back with a, and asked, for, asked us if we wanted a drink. And uh, she said, Mr. Welch, would you like something? And I said yes, and she said to my colleague, Dr. Gettner, would you like something? I said, Dr. Gettner, Mr. Welch, I, that doctor sounded pretty good, and all I had to do was go to school a couple more years. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed there. But that's about as much thought as I gave to that. You mean that's why you got your PhD? <laughs> yeah. And these days nobody calls PhDs doctors no. anymore, unless you're Henry Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't like that.
no, so it's it's been a series of bumps, and I think the the book sort of tries to tell that. We, I've had a lot of been fortunate to have a lot of covers in magazines and stuff, and one fellow, John John Byrne, my co-author in this thing, uh, wrote a story in Business Week where we gave him six months to run through the company, and he talked about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You don't have to change. You can be yourself. And he, and he wrote this story, and we got a thousand letters from people. And that's why we ended up writing the book, in a way. Do you mind if I take a minute to read something? Please. Uh, this is simply um, right off the Internet, and these are the businesses. And I think I'm missing one page as well, so I don't have all of it here. Uh, but these are all the different areas that um, General Electric is in. Uh, now I found that page. So that's what's going to take a little time. These are not the names of companies. There are many companies within these various categories. But GE is involved in aircraft engines, appliances, capital services, commercial aviation services, commercial equipment financing, commercial finance, employers reinsurance corporation, GE equity, financial assurance, uh, global consumer finance, global exchange services, industrial systems, lighting. My goodness, light bulbs. I remember those. (laughs) Uh, medical Systems, Mortgage Insurance Corporation, NBC, Power Systems, Real Estate, Specialty Materials, GE Supply, Structured Finance Group, Transportation Systems, Vendor Financial Services. That's that's rather an extensive list, isn't it? Flage. It really grew. How much of that was there when you joined the company? Virtually none of it except... No, that some of the industrial pieces were there, the yeah. appliance pieces there. We've been in lighting from the first day. To be sure, yeah. yeah. No, no, I um, there there were a lot of the seeds there. So this but you was, acquired. This was not a Jack Welch. But a lot of this was acquired well, in in your time as yeah, CEO. Yeah, we we acquired in the last five years close to a thousand companies. Hmm. Did about two hundred a year, about four a week. And um, it was a lot of fun. It raises a very interesting question. A question that's been. Um, written about, thought about, much discussed, not only in business schools, but in departments of political science and in departments of sociology. Is the megacorporation in some ways replacing the nation as an institution? I've never felt that. You know, uh, there is a perception of power, et cetera, from from the megacorporation. I never felt that. I've never felt, and I never saw it exercised. I've always seen governments as the corporation subservient to governments, whether they be European governments, whether they be U.S. governments, whether they be Japanese governments. I, I have not seen that. You, you hear about campaign finance reform. You hear about this, that, and the next thing. All these things are important, but I've never seen the corporation, you know, in, at least in this one I've been involved with, uh, exert influence that was in, in any way meaningful uh, in against of all, all without the government being the dominating force well, it isn't just a question of exerting influence it's also the question of making decisions which ultimately affect the texture the tenor and the uh, uh, the prospects of the lives of individuals individuals beyond the corporation that is well in the end the corporation is the creator of wealth the government is not the creator of wealth exactly mm-hmm. so the it, it is with with a healthy vibrant corporation who can give back, who can pay taxes, whose employees are happy, whose employees mentor inner-city kids, who do all these things. In the end, the ultimate corporate social responsibility is to be successful. 
And by being successful, you create an atmosphere where people are secure, where they grow, where they flourish, where they reach their full potential, reach their dreams. It, uh, it sure as hell beats uh, the any other system designed yet. And what do the trends towards globalization, which is moving very rapidly apace, what do those trends do in the further transformation of uh, the way in which life-affecting decisions are made in the world? Well, without question, globalization. Now, the most misused world, word in the, in the last five years is globalization. It's, it's interpreted by anybody as anything that, that they want at any one point in time. Globalization, in the end, creates more for the have-nots and gets them closer to the haves. And if you wanted, to, I, I just came back from a trip this week. I was in uh, East Berlin. I was in Dublin. No place like Ireland, for example, has benefited more from globalization. No country than Ireland. Uh, Prague, Budapest, uh, East Berlin, uh, China. Um, all these places have benefited from the force of globalization. Now, globalization has not cured the, sub the subcontinent. It hasn't improved life in Afghanistan as we look at it today. It hasn't done that. But where were they 10 years ago? It has improved. It hasn't been the antidote for everything. But it's certainly improved a lot in life of millions and millions of people. Now, it has not cured the, the world's ills. And we have other organizations that are going to have to be part of that. And corporations have to play their role, too. But you're going to have to have the UN. You're going to have to have the World Bank. You're going to have other, other people are going to have to try and find economic systems in these areas that makes things work. But the fact that globalization has not solved everything should not be a stone at globalization because it's certainly done more than most anything else to improve the lot in life of more people. Hey, speaking of improving the lot of life in people, I told you earlier that uh, I have some money invested in uh, a GE-managed uh, fund. But I just remembered I also have some shares of GE, which is a totally separate matter. <laughs> Uh, should I hold on to them? Well, I am. I am. I'm very confident of the company, but everyone has to make their own personal decision mm -hmm. on that. I haven't sold a share. How much has the company lost in share value over the last uh, year? Over, over the last year? Or thereabouts. Yeah. Since I, the market began the, to the, decline. The last 18 months, probably $200 billion. Mm -hmm. And it's now about $400 billion. Uh, it's about $100 billion higher than number two, but still uh, a ways from where it was. Yeah, that being Microsoft, as right. you said. Uh, what's the prospect, really, for American corporate achievement and for general growth, particularly keeping in mind, you mentioned Afghanistan a moment ago, keeping in mind that we're talking on October 16th, so we're just a little bit more than a month away from September 11th, which changed our life, it seems to me. Well, it certainly changed our way of thinking for a while here now and but it's brought us together like nothing has ever brought us together I, you've been around as long as i have and uh have you ever seen this country more united have you ever seen uh, a more bipartisan government uh, my problem is i spend a good deal of time on campus 
and on the campuses around the country. Peacenik professors have been standing up and uh, addressing Peacenik student organizations or, or groups saying that we should not be engaged in any assault upon anybody. We should just, in essence, quote, turn the other cheek. Now, now isn't that true? We were driving through Dublin the other night, and there was a group outside the police station chanting, chanting, and and, uh, and we were saying, 20 years from now, they'll be in the car driving by looking at uh, mm -hmm. students out there saying, why are they doing that? I mean, that's that's one of the great things of campus life. And it's gone on from uh, for the last 40 years and probably long before that, probably long before that. Good conscious debate is a reasonable thing. And uh, you'll see that. I'm sure I'll see it tonight at, at Northwestern or I'll see it at the University of Chicago tonight. And, and, and that's a perfectly uh, legitimate question to raise. I don't happen to believe in it. I, I believe we've been assaulted. I believe our way of life has been assaulted. I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely uh, impressed with the leadership of the country and the city of New York. I think Giuliani has demonstrated leadership like we haven't seen in years. You've just chosen the new successor uh, at C as CEO. Yeah. You could have offered it to Giuliani, I suppose. No, my 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 successor uh, within uh, 24 hours was the corporate Giuliani. He yeah. saw every constituent. His first act was to donate $10 million uh, to the fund, the first company to do it, mm -hmm. second day to the, to the fireman's families. Um, he was on, he had an analyst meeting scheduled in a week. Uh, hundreds of analyst meetings were, were, were canceled. He walked right in and said, here's what I know, here's what I'm not sure of, here's what I don't know, but let me tell you where I think we're going. I mean, I've never been so proud of anything in my life as his performance in the first month in this crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, he got, I retired on a Friday, and on Tuesday, it all occurred. So this guy was in was in the job for 48 hours, and uh, has been remarkable. I mean, has been remarkable. He's been the he's been the corporate equivalent of Giuliani. I would That's say. That's great. You're only uh, about 65 there, right? Is that is that the exact age? Exact age. Yeah, that's as near as I could calculate. Uh, well, you're and you're a vigorous guy, full of uh, um, full of spirit still. Uh, you got a lot of life ahead of you. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to work with a number of companies to try and create in them, if you will, this culture, this people uh -huh. factory, this informal way to give voice to all everyone in the organization, to try and build an organization where they have um, the absolute bench of talent that I had in GE. I, we were so fortunate. We, I mean, we, we had three successes to pick from, to pick the one we had. We had armies below them ready to move up. Uh, we just have great talent. And if you make people your focus, I mean, the idea of you reading off all, all those things. Now, think how silly it is to think that one person could run those things and know much about them. What's the total number of employees, by the way? 350,000. It's rather a sizable family. It is a little family. bit bigger than the usual neighborhood grocery store. But everything we do is aimed at making it like that in the middle. No. But I, what I was trying to say was if, if you think about it, Jack Welch couldn't run that, couldn't run those businesses. I, I couldn't design an engine. I couldn't design a comedy. I couldn't de de design a show. Uh, but I can pick people. Not always right, 
but a better batting average than I had years ago. And I got a lot of help because every one of us every day is evaluating people. Last question. Yes. I know you're busy today, and I don't want to hold you too long, but what are the telltale signs with regard to young people just coming along? What kind of person would you hire? Not not merely in terms of technical competence and so on, but what are the signs that would sort of be the psychological indications? P. P for passion. E for energy. E for the ability to energize others. E for edge, the ability to say yes and no. And E for execution, the ability to deliver. All wrapped around a P, a passion for doing something. I don't care if you want to be an artist. I don't care if you want to, you want to be a singer. I don't care what you want to be. But you've got to care. You've got to care more than the next person, though. It's got to be right in your toes. I'm not much for dabbling. I'm for people who care. And GE's for a place for, where people care. So GE looks for PE. Very good, both in both in many ways. Yeah, it's been great talking with you, Jack. Uh, Welch's new book is titled "Jack: Straight from the Gut," published by Warner Business Books. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Mel. Enjoyed it.